the Lord tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Abraham was a faithful man. We first learn about Abraham's faith in Genesis 12 when God calls to him as he's worshiping a moon god in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now the Lord said to Abram, he's called Abram at this point, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now later in Genesis chapter 15, Moses writing reflects on this moment. Abraham believing God and following him into the otherwise utterly unknown, and says that God credited that faithfulness to Abraham as righteousness. The Apostle Paul, several thousand years later, makes this same point, quoting Moses, both to the Romans and to the Galatians. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, Paul continues, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's The example from Romans chapter 4. And with all of that in mind, I want to call your attention this morning to just a little moment in the otherwise super well-known story of Abraham's almost sacrifice of his son Isaac. A moment that I think is less well-known. Certainly it's a moment that I read over dozens and dozens of times without noticing it. And I call your attention to it this morning because it is yet another illustration of Abraham's faith, even in the midst of a great trial. Here it is in Genesis chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham, I think, 
Even though he is a fallible and sinful human being who has been asked to do what must have seemed to him to be the worst thing in the world. Even though Abraham has every reason in the world to be walking up that mountain with tears in his eyes and rage in his heart. Abraham tells his servants that he and Isaac are coming back. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. He's been called to sacrifice his son. And yet he claims that both of them are coming back. Now, I don't think he's lying or just saying something to calm Isaac's nerves or saying something that he's going to have to take back later. This, I think, is an illustration of Abraham's faith. Abraham actually believes that God will provide some other sacrifice. Earlier, when Isaac notices that they have the wood and the fire and the knife for an offering, and he asks his father about the animal, Abraham says as much, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Here's what I'm getting at. I don't think Abraham is on his way up the mountain to see if he will pass a test. Abraham passed this test before he even started up the mountain. Indeed, it's because Abraham actually does believe that God will provide, because he has that faith, that he can start up the mountain at all. This latest test of Abraham's faith began when God said to him, Abraham, And he responded just like he might have responded to God that first time. Here I am. But this time, God asks him for much more than to leave behind everything he knows, travel to a new land and trust that he will be provided for as big an ask as that was. This time, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. God tested Abraham. Now this idea of testing rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? That God would give Abraham, and therefore maybe at some point, us, a test. And a test like this. After all... He must know that we're liable to fail a test, right? We've been doing that since Adam and Eve, haven't we? And hasn't Abraham himself failed similar tests before? He pretended Sarah was his sister in order to protect himself. He went along with her plan to have a child by Hagar instead of trusting the Lord. And now this, given what we know about humanity in general, and even about Abraham specifically, this seems like a test given to someone who isn't likely to pass. And what's with all the testing anyway? I thought God was supposed to be love. And if we know anything, it's that love and testing are completely separate things. But this I want to tell you this morning, is not a test 
in the same way that we normally think about tests. We most readily think of tests, I think, in the context of school, don't we? An examination after which we get a grade to see what we know, to see what we can remember, to see what we can produce, to see, in a sense, how good we are. Aya and I spent much of the spring semester with one of our kids learning the locations and capitals of, I think, pretty much every country in the world. Let me tell you something, by the way. Africa is a beast. So many countries. But it happened. We got it done. Flashcards, maps, charts, repetition, repetition, repetition. No one in our family will ever forget that Ouagadougou is the capital of Burkina Faso ever again. Or Chisinau, the capital of Moldova. And no, of course I didn't have to look those up as I was writing this sermon. (laughs) They're emblazoned forever on my brain. But here's the thing about that geography test. It was work. And remember that Paul puts faith in contrast to works. Now to the one who works, he says, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How different would it have been if our child had been allowed to have a world atlas next to him on the desk with his test paper? If every time a question came up in his mind, every time he started to worry about how good he was, how different would it have been if he could calm his stressed out heart by referring back to something he knew to be true? That's what God has given Abraham over all these years of faithfulness. He has made Abraham an answer key. This is an open book test. When that word of God first came to Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his son, I can barely even imagine Abraham's reaction. His heart must have caught in his chest and he must have broken out in a cold sweat. Just like you would do when presented with a question on an important test that you don't know the answer to. But way, way worse. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. What? How can this be? What kind of commandment is this? How can you test me in this way? But I also imagine that it wasn't too long before Abraham was given to reflect on the character of this God who was asking this of him. And in reflecting, Abraham would have realized that God has already given him the answer key. I will provide. The God who has asked this impossible thing of him is the same God who sought him out, a pagan, in a far-off land, and promised 
to give him a family, a nation, and an inheritance. This is the same God who, despite Sarah's laughter and Abraham's unfaithfulness, kept that promise, providing them a son, this son, in their old age and in their barrenness. And so, knowing God as he does, Abraham can turn to those servants on the top of that mountain and say, my son and I will go over there, we will worship, and we will come back. So like Abraham, we can see that this test is not just about investigating Abraham's faith. It is about showing Abraham God's faith. Indeed, it is God's faithfulness on which this story turns, not Abraham's. And that is good news for us, for you and me this morning. It means that we can also rely on God's faithfulness, not on our own. We can rely on God and not ourselves to provide. Abraham worships a God who has previously promised him a bunch of times that through Isaac, he will have a great family. Abraham's faith, his willingness to obey this seemingly awful command and pass this test is founded on the reliability of God's promise. God doesn't provide for Abraham because of Abraham's faithfulness. He provides a ram because of his own faithfulness, because of the promise that he made. Abraham's faith, in fact, is a direct result of God's faithfulness. Now, it's true that later in Genesis 22, God does tell Abraham, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He does say that. But this is simply God reiterating the promise that he has already made. It is God's faithfulness that has really been put to the test here. And again, as he always has, God provides. The ram is caught in the thicket every single time. And in the exact same way that when that heart-catching and cold-sweat-inducing test comes, In the same way that Abraham is comforted by looking back at God's promise-keeping past. So comforted that he can tell his servants that he and Isaac are going to worship and that they'll be right back. In the same way that Abraham is comforted by looking back at God's faithfulness, you must look back too. That's where your comfort is. Not in your own faithfulness but in the story of how faithful God has been to you. So look back. Look back to Jesus. Abraham knew 
that a ram would be caught in the thicket, that God himself would provide the burnt offering. And just like that, Jesus hung on a cross for you. And you can know it just as surely. God again provided the offering, his own son, to reconcile you to himself. It is finished. God is faithful. God will provide. In John chapter 16, very near the end, Jesus comforts his disciples who have their hearts caught in their chest. They've broken out in a cold sweat. Their Messiah, the man they thought was going to be their political and national liberator, has just told them that he's going to die. Now, he's told them many times before, but it has finally hit home. But Jesus tells them, remember my promises. Remember that God will provide. Behold, he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is our God at work. He does everything. He is the lawgiver and the law keeper. He makes the promises and he keeps them. He asks the impossible and he provides it. This story about Abraham and Isaac is an intentional foretaste of the miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ and his death for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? On the same mountain where God would stop Abraham from sacrificing his son, God himself would go through with the sacrifice of his only son. God asked Abraham to do the impossible, but then provided a substitute. He asks us for the impossible too. A righteous life that conforms to his image. But then he provides again his own son, his only son for you. And on our own, there is no test we can pass. But we are not on our own. You have the answer key. This is an open book test. God will provide. Look back like Abraham did. Remember what God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. He provides a ram for the offering. He is the ram. He becomes sin, as Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians, so that we, we, sinners like you and me, he becomes sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. My God, my God, Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, 
God's provision bore its fruit on the mountain. He requires perfection and gives his perfect son to satisfy that requirement. He sets the test and he passes it. But that's not all. Because of that moment, a great miracle happens. On account of his love, you are actually become perfect. Your faith is counted as righteousness. On account of his love, you actually become holy because of Christ's accomplishment for you. You are regarded as holy. You are clothed with Christ and made right with God forever. God seems to ask for the impossible like he did with Abraham. But that's not the end of the story. God, faithful to his promise, intervenes miraculously in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God incarnate for you. He sets the test and he passes it. In him, the work is complete. In him, you can rest. And like Abraham and Isaac, worship. God has indeed provided the lamb for the sacrifice. He has indeed interceded on the mountain. And he has done it for you. Amen.